One of the ironies of history that one of the greatest composers of all time, Ludwig von Beethoven, and Beethoven became increasingly deaf with age. How ironic is it that the one who produced such an array of beautiful and striking music, concertos, sonatas, symphonies, should be robbed of the joy of actually hearing them performed? On a day like today with the wind and the rain, I think of his pastoral symphony, Symphony Number no. 6 which evokes the force and beauty of nature. Well worth listening to if it's been a while. But Beethoven did not go down without a fight. He didn't just resign himself to the continued loss of his hearing. In fact, he embarked on a variety of ways and methods to improve it, however possible that was. He got and bought ever larger ear trumpets to hear him uh, so that he could hear even just a little bit better. When it got really bad, he hacked off the legs of his piano so that he could put his ear to the floor, of the wooden floor, and hear the vibration of the note as it struck the floor to see if that was what was resonating in his mind as he was thinking of his piece that he was working on. Even when he was completely deaf, it did not stop him from creating some of the greatest work of his life. In today's text, the writer of Hebrews turns our attention to a group of people who have become increasingly hard of hearing. The beautiful music of the gospel of Christ that they were once able to hear loudly has become, had become much quieter, barely audible. But unlike Beethoven, their loss of hearing was voluntary. The life-giving melodies of a life connected to Jesus and the joy of his presence, of hearing his purpose, of being about his mission, that once resounded in their hearts, now for some reason had become dull. And our text in Hebrews 5 begins with this fact. The writer says, it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. And so what follows is an exhortation for the readers of this letter of Hebrews to once again listen and to follow. The word maturity is used within the text more than once to tell us what the thrust of the, of the writer is, is trying to exhort. He wants them to become mature. And that he not only wants them to become mature, but in the course of, of the argument that he lays out, he says that immaturity is not an option. You have to press on to maturity. In fact, if you do not, you're in a dangerous place. So this is the text that's in our lectionary that was just read. And it is in keeping, of course, with that, that idea of pilgrimage that we've been talking about, that Hebrews really is about what it means to be walking with Christ in this life as he leads us to a country not our own. I mean, this is the country not our own, to the country that we originally were purposed for, the heavenly country. So we're in this pilgrimage in this time. And last week we talked about how there's times we get off the road and then the Lord graciously brings us back on. Now that we're on that, how do we move forward? How do we attune our ears to hear how he's leading, to see that he's leading us towards maturity? Now, we said that the believers aren't, they're told that they're no longer wanting to understand. Their hearing has grown dull. But we're not told why that is. 
Now, we've looked at some of the suspects for that. We've looked at, for example, the tradition that the, these Jewish readers were a part of. Tradition is really hard to let go of. They had their spiritual tradition that had the sacrificial system by which they were right with God. They had their leader in Moses by which they knew what the law was and how to stay right with God. And yet, this whole Jesus movement bursts on the scene and it says, Jesus is now the supreme sacrifice. It's no longer necessary to go to the temple. Now Moses is the one who actually longed to see Jesus' day. So he's not the pinnacle. This at some level is mind-blowing and they, some, of the, some of them are, are embracing this, but at the same time, when the going gets tough, when their relatives come and say, hey, are you really sure? It's easy to see doubt creep in. Easy to see how tradition, whatever spiritual tradition we were raised in or friends were raised in, whatever worldview was dominant as we were being shaped and developed, how that continues if we're not careful, if, we're not, if we've lost our sort of hearing a bit, how that can continue to impact and, and cause us to, to become dull to what the message of Christ is, cause us to set our maturity. So that's one possible suspect. Another would be the worldly enticements, the things of this world that are going on around you. There's so many attractions and so many things that, that our friends might be enjoying. And they're saying, well, why aren't you doing it? Or beliefs that they might have and say, well, that can't believe you still think the way you do. What John calls the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. Worldly enticements had their attraction in Bible times and they continue to do that today. But I think the thing that is most on my heart as I was preparing this message is that I think causes us to be dull and, and we don't know it as much is what the early church and even up until medieval times called that, that sin of sloth or, or acedia. It's this idea, the Desert Fathers were talking about it. As I said, church theologians. It was so important to them that they actually considered it one of the seven deadly sins. And what it is essentially is to, I'll paraphrase it, is to give up on Christ's lordship in this world, to resign oneself to the idea that God's really not in charge in some way, shape, or form, and to allow then the oppression of the world and all its systems to just be an overhang on one's heart and one's psyche. It classically dulls one's activity, one's fervor, which is why it is often des described as sloth. It takes away our, that sense of faithful service or humility or dependence on the Lord or, or finding life in the sacraments of the church, chiefly Holy Communion. Paradoxically, it can also be considered a type of busyness. When you think or you wonder whether God's really alive and well in this world, there's two reactions. One is to resign oneself to the possibility that that's not the case and to be in kind of this you know, low estate. The other is to redouble one's efforts and to say, well, if the Lord isn't really as active as I once thought he was, I'm going to jump in and I'm going to be a whirlwind of activity. Both of these are the same sides, two sides of the same coin. It's not up to us to figure out how to live and survive in this life. The Lord already has his plan. And I think that this idea of acedia is really, the temptation to it at least, is on the increase in our church. I was reading a column that Russ Douthat wrote. Some of you know him as the writer and the columnist for the New York Times. Just after Easter, he penned a column called Can 
the meritocracy find God. He writes this, even if there is a resilience in American religion, especially in evangelical Christianity, still the most numerically robust form of faith, it doesn't alter institutional faith's general weakness, its limited influence, its subordinate position to other personal affiliations, from partisanship to ethnic identity to sports or superhero fandom. A key piece of this weakness is religion's extreme marginalization with the American intelligentsia, meaning not just would-be intellectuals, but a wider elite university-educated population, the meritocrats or knowledge workers, the professional managerial class. Now, this is a world that I'm familiar with, and this is a world I think that many of us can identify with. I think whether you can identify with it or not, it certainly characterizes the region in which we live the region in which we live out our lives in Christ. And I find at times it's like a perpetual cloud cover. It's kind of like being up in the Northwest. Have you ever been up there for any length of time? It just oftentimes seems like there's just perpetual cloud cover. But for us who, are, who belong to Christ, it's also a calling. It's an opportunity for us to be a, a part of what God has for this time and this place. But we can only do that if we move forward in the call of maturity that he calls us to. That we, we resist the dullness of our hearing to what he is inviting us to be. And so the rest of the text helps us understand what maturity is. It says, as we go on, therefore, let, let us move toward the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, Instruction about cleansing rites, which refers to baptism. The laying on of hands, which refers to the way that leaders are appointed and anointed. The resurrection of the dead, which is our hope and eternal judgment, which is our gateway to that hope. God permitting, we will do so. Christ has taken us forward. That's encouraging to me. It is the Lord who already has a plan for what this text is calling our maturity, our development in the faith. The text goes on to essentially give us some idea of what that looks like. First, in the form of a bit of, of gentle rebuke. By now, you ought to be teachers, but instead, you still need to be taught. You still need to hear the basics of the gospel. gospel. And, it, and it likens it to, to physical growth. Talks about infants who need milk. And then instead of going on to maturity, where as you grow up, you can have solid food. If you're an infant or toddler, maybe milk is appropriate. But if you're an adult, solid food is appropriate. You wouldn't give steak to an infant. Be a little weird if you decide to have lunch with a friend at work and busted out a formula bottle. But this is sort of the ridiculous picture that, that's being portrayed by the writer so that the readers are hearing this and saying, hmm, how is it that I've regressed to this place of infancy or this place of toddlerhood? How is it that I'm not moving forward? So maturity in this text is likened to physical growth, which means that it, it's not all at once. It takes place over time. Toddlers need to become children, and then they become adolescents, and then they become adults, bit by bit. To become mature not only takes time, but it also means that maturity is, and here's a key part of, of this text, maturity is primarily God's responsibility, not our activity. I don't know about you, but I've certainly been in some Bible studies where the, the idea when we started talking about Christian maturity, we went to the task list pretty quickly. 
We said, okay, how do we become more mature? Well, we read more scriptures. We delve into the Old Testament. We plug into Ezekiel, because that's complex. We start to pray more. We do some fasting. We do spiritual practices. And they have their place. But they are not the definition of maturity. They are a means by which God, who already has his, his plan for us, his spiritual genetics, if you will, knows how he's developing us, knows what he wants us to do, knows the, the path that he has us on, knows the things that are going to start coming into our life when we're able to handle that. He knows all those things. So maturity fundamentally is not so much about what we do, but how we respond to what the Lord is doing in our life. I like what St. Ignatius says when he is trying to prepare those that he's teaching to understand that it's the Lord who's in charge. He says this, try to keep your soul always in peace and quiet, always ready for whatever our Lord may wish to work in you. It's God's agenda. So I don't know if sometimes we, get a, we can get a little anxious about, man, I don't think I'm where I'm supposed to be. I'm still in the same swirl, still going around the same eddy of whatever that is. And I'd like to get out of it. And I hope, I find this passage really encouraging. I find the Lord exhorting us to maturity. I find that he's moving us on to, to living, our, here's the key to maturity, to living our life in the power of Christ. And as we do that, we gain an experience base so that we know, as this text says, that more and more the difference between good and evil. So maturity is depending on Christ, responding to him, but it's not just something that is optional. Some sort of poorer vestiges of some Christian cultures are, with its emphasis primarily on a conversion experience, meant that what classically was called sanctification was, was kind of in this secondary category. It's something you did afterwards, and if you did it half-heartedly, well, at least you were in the kingdom. And I think that's such an abuse of Scripture. I don't think Scripture really teaches that at all. So what Scripture does teach is that we must press on to maturity. And this is a constant refrain from the writers of the New Testament. And that, in fact, it's not optional. There's a part of that text that you may have caught your ear where the writer in this letter says, he's actually giving somewhat of a veiled warning. It's impossible for those who've been enlightened to have tasted the heavenly gift, to have shared in the Holy Spirit, to have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, to, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again, subjecting him to public disgrace. This, in, in a sense, is a death notice. This is saying that if you've rejected Christ, having once walked with him, how is it that you can be restored? This is like, like being in a no man's land. Well, let me just say, I, I know that this is also before we get to no man's land, somewhat of a classic text for the debate about can you lose your salvation? This is a, a contentious text that people wrestle over. Uh, but we aren't going to take any time to actually unpack that today. So, but what I will say, and I think the purpose and the intention of the author is to provide a warning, to say, don't go near there. Don't get into this spiritual no man's land where you have no protection. No man's land was a term from the horrendous way that warfare was carried out, particularly in World War I, where you know, the one army was in their trench and the other army was in their trench, and one army had to attack the other, and they had to cross a no-man's land where they were very vulnerable, unprotected, at risk of, of all kinds of mayhem and bullets and bombs and shells. 
It was the most dangerous place to be. The writer is saying, do not be in this spiritual no man's land where you're no longer under the protection and power of the Lord. Let me just say that I have friends and uh, not sure about family, but certainly friends who have said to me that they no longer believe. Perhaps you do too. I just want to offer a pastoral word that until the Lord, until their time on earth is over, there's always hope. There's always an opportunity to repent. Don't give up praying for them. Don't give up taking the opportunity to seek them out, seeing how they're doing. It's not up to us to decide where they're going to be. It's up to us to be alongside, to help them as they give us opportunity. The writer presents this, as I said, as a bit of a warning. But then as a good pastor, he says, even though we speak like this, dear friends, even though we're bold, even though I know this hurts, we are convinced of better things in your case. Oh, fantastic. We're convinced of better things regarding you, things that accompany salvation, even though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work or the love that you have shown towards his name by having served and still serving the saints. We desire that each of you demonstrate the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until its end so that you won't be sluggish, you won't be hard of hearing, but rather be imitators. Here's the thing. We may, as we go through this life, as we allow some sins and some habits and some, some thought processes, still dull our hearing, still get us off. We may allow what's going on in our world in this time with all its challenges and its particular pressures to kind of create a certain acedia of the soul. But the Lord is the one who says, I have not more than not given up. I have better things for you. I have a place that you don't even know about yet, not only in heaven, which none of us can actually fathom, but we hopefully look forward to being there, but even in this lifetime. And so that is meant to be an encouragement. We may have some hearing loss, but the good news is that it's temporary, that God is taking the responsibility for our maturity and our response is just to follow him so that we might experience the better things. And to be encouraged, look around, take stock of your of, of just your past week. See the ways that you reflected your love for God in the things that you do, in, in the things that you've done, in the way that you came alongside of people, in the way that you prayed for them, in the way that you lifted them up, in the way that you sacrificed for those that were close to you. All these things the writer is calling out as evidence that we do belong to Christ. And then to be encouraged that he is building on that foundation. He builds on it as we are, as we move forward in the way he's leading us. And he encourages us to be imitators of those who through faith and endurance inherit the promises. Someday we will be with those who've already gone before us, who led lives of faith, who saw the Lord bring them to maturity, who built on the faith and endurance that he was providing them bit by bit over time, because that's maturity. And we will be able to rejoice with them. And we will be able to give thanks. And we will be able to know finally that he had all along better things for us. May we be convinced of that today. Amen. Thanks for being with us online in the sermon podcast. To find out more about Holy Trinity Silicon Valley, head to www.holytrinitysv.org.